Welcome to Mr. Cack and Me. I am Chris, uh, and it has been a little bit. Uh, with this time of year, the holiday season, there was bound to be some interference and interruption, you know, going out and do the family thing. Uh, but also this time of year, there happens to be a lot of icky sickness floating around. Uh, so I've actually I've currently lost my voice and have had to, to go through a bit of an ordeal during this break period since you last heard my voice. Um, but while my voice is kind of recovering, I've compiled another cryptid conversation. This is more of an urban legend conversation with, or I guess an unsolved mystery conversation with Zach. So Zach did um, the Falk Monster and the um, Garden Lights conversation uh, for the last couple of Mr. Cack episodes, Mr. Cack and Me episodes. So I have Zach back. Uh, we're going to cover some more uh, fascinating Arkansas lore, and I hope you enjoy it. And then my goal is that next week I will start producing uh, some, some me-centric conversations, uh, and then hopefully we can get back into having guests on the show. If you are interested in chatting with me, please let me know. All right. I hope you enjoy. This is Mr. Cack and me. It's encrypted. Yeah. All right. It is that time again. Our Monday tradition of introducing an Arkansas cryptid or local legend. Uh, and, and this week it is, what is it? The Texarkana Moonlight Murders, which features the Phantom. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I think we're going to break this one down to three parts. Um, the first part is going to be an overview of just the in general stuff. Uh, next week's episode will be the murders, uh, and we'll get more into that because there is like uh, four different murders. And so we'll talk about that because this is a very interesting story uh, for the state of Arkansas because this was actually never solved. Um, and so it's not really a cryptid because it's, it is true. It is a true story, but... There's a lot of folklore behind it, and um, nobody's ever solved it. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot of he said, she said, and talk around the town and stuff. So yeah, so this is more like a local legend, like a, a state legend uh, of like, while different than the cryptids you talked about with the Falk monster and the Garden Lights, still a, a kind of a, a local bigger legend for those that kind of deep dive the mysterious supernatural or the mysterious side of Arkansas. Uh, this is a story for you. It's got its own Wikipedia page. That's how you know it's big time. Yep. Um, and so I guess this is where we'll start. So this is the Texas uh, Texarkana Moonlight Murders, where we get introduced to the Phantom Killer slash Phantom Slayer. During the spring of 1946, a series of unsolved serial murders happened in a small town that straddles the border of Texas and Arkansas, in which the contemporary press at the time called, the Texar called them the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. The aforementioned small town of Texarkana sits split down the middle by Highway 71 between Miller County, Arkansas, and Bowie County, Texas. Texarkana, Arkansas, has a population of 29,901, and Texarkana, Texas, has a population of 36,688 as of today. Um, so so it, it always confused me as a kid, you know, being like, oh, we're going to Dallas or whatever, but we're got to go through Texarkana. And then we get there, and it would be like Texarkana, Arkansas— and then Texarkana, Texas. Um, and so I, I, I do get that that mixed up quite a bit, which is, I guess, understandable. Um, uh, so it's it's understandable, but in the same way that the Kansas side of Kansas City is awful, the Missouri side of Kansas City is better. The Arkansas side of Texarkana is way better than the crap hole Texas side. 
Just throwing it out there. Just putting it out there. Just making Part it true. Um, so the murders occurred between February 22nd uh, and May 3rd, 1946. The hypothetical perpetrator known as the Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer is credited with attacking eight people, five of whom were murdered in the 10-week ten, ten span. The attacks during this time occurred at night on weekends and targeted male-female pairs. The first three attacks happened on, lo- on lovers' lanes, which were quiet stretches of roads on the Texas side of Texarkana. A fourth attack occurred at an isolated farmhouse on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. The murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications and caused a state of panic in Texarkana throughout the summer after the murders. Um, so, you know, we're going to talk about these murders next week. Um, there there was some a lot of speculation that the first three were connected, but the last one is not like the others and not connected. Um, so we'll get into that next week. So I think the the thing the more that I kind of looked into this both from uh, what you were writing up for for the kind of like script of these next three weeks, um, but also just looking a little bit more into it myself is the fact that there seems to be like a local legend in like most places of this masked killer hunting down people and like you know a car involvement and a couple being blindsided. I mean, like, the whole trope, like, I mean, all he's missing is a hook hand, uh, and that's pretty much an urban legend from, like, everywhere. Uh, So it is very fascinating. Um, So I'm very interested to hear a little bit more about the the crimes themselves and kind of seeing, like, oh, like, how much of that, like, bleeds into, like, other things, like, how much of this is all connected? How much of this is all just, like, a weird coincidence that there's kind of, like, a same M.O. uh, that seemed to just kind of haunt most of a portion of the United States in a very similar way, because even, uh, even over in California, like the Zodiac killer, a lot of, of similarities between like the attire, um, the, the murders themselves and like the, the victims. So I'm very curious to, to learn a little bit more about this and see kind of how it plays out. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, this is one of the more interesting ones I like to read about just because there is a lot more information on, um, and you know, um, I mean, there is documents out there that that is that makes this true a true thing. So it's kind of it's just fascinating, like how times have changed, how technology has made you know finding somebody a serial killer more accessible than it was back in the forties. And yet, still isn't like a statistic like there's like one in like you know like one in 100 people like a serial killers among us like at all times yeah. like yeah and like and there's like this unreal number of people that like have gotten away with murders that are still just living amongst us or have the possibility uh, of of potentially doing something along these lines and they just haven't yet but maybe are working the, the world is terrifying man oh yeah for sure let's see kung fu kebab his game of choice are castle crashers osu Naruto Shippuden, Ultimate Ninja Storm 4, uh, Adventure Quest Worlds, and Brawlhalla. Brawlhalla is kind of fun. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, Castle Crashers, yeah. Uh, Naruto, listen, I like the anime. I just couldn't get into the games. Yeah, it's, it's a button smasher, so it's not that I'm against it because I love me some button smashers. It's just I never really got into the games of that. Uh, but I like the anime. I like the anime. Uh, so... To finish, so when the dusk when dusk rolled around during the summer months, heavily armed Texarkanians would lo- lock themselves in their houses while police patrolled the streets and neighborhoods. Local stores sold out of guns, ammunitions, locks, and many other protective devices. Uh, 
Youths even attempted to try and bait the and ambush the killer. Um, investigations were conducted from the city level all the way up to the federal level. In the course of the investigation, there have been shifting opinions on whether the first and fourth attacks were committed by the same killer. The prime suspect in that in the case was uh, Yoel Sweeney. Sweeney was a petty criminal who was linked to the murders primarily by statements from his wife and other circumstantial evidence. Sweeney's wife refused to testify against him, and prosecutor and prosecutors stopped pursuing murder charges. Two of the lead investigators thought Sweeney was guilty, and a book in 2014, The Phantom Killer Unlocked the Mystery of Texarkana Serial Murders, also points to Sweeney as the culprit. This event, these events inspired many works, which include the 1976 film The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is the basis for the myth and folklore around the murders and is shown every year uh, at a festival. So, could you, like, it's, it's tough to believe that a single person could send a, a town into complete lockdown. Like, we have a pandemic, and most of these towns won't go into complete lockdown yeah. nowadays. Like, it, it's pretty wild to think that there was a time where one person had the ability to do such a thing. Like, that just seems so foreign and abstract. Like, that doesn't seem like a real thing that could happen. Yeah. Uh, it, Kung Fu Kebab asks, is there a movie on these killings? Uh, so, yeah, it's actually uh, called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's uh, by the same director who directed uh, the Fal the Legend of Boggy Creek uh, about the Falk monster here in uh, Arkansas. So, <laughs> uh, so in case you're wondering, Kung Fu Kebab, uh, here you go. It is a nice movie that is made like 30 years before you were ever born. <laughs> All right, 40 years before you were ever born. But there you go. Uh, yeah, man. But just that 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 imagery, like, because even. Cause even like so, the imagery used for this killer, uh, for this killer, for like the phantom, like that's that's I mean, that is the that is the image used for the first iteration of Jason from Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Like, yeah, it, I mean that's so, a lot of things and a yeah, lot of it's so movies. it's so wild to think like could all these things that I now know of before I knew that this existed be like inspiration from this thing that happened in Arkansas or tie back to this thing that happened in Arkansas. I don't know, but it it'd be it it gets me interested enough that I'd be I'd be willing to go down a deep dive of rabbit holes to figure it out. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that that's what makes it interesting for sure. Uh, you know, this is this is what makes like all these things interesting to me. Um, and I'm I'm loving bringing this to other people to like let them know. You know, there's more things in Arkansas that you probably haven't even heard of. No. So let's go ahead and do the cryptid corner. It is that time again, Al. We're back on the cryptid corner. Last week, you started giving us information on the Phantom Murders from Texarkana. Uh, what was the other name for it? Uh, the Texas Moonlight Murders. Texas the Moonlight Texarkana. Texarkana, Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Uh, and this is all stuff that's based on the film. Uh, oh, gosh, what was it? Uh, the town that dreaded sundown. The tra the town that dreaded sundown. So, uh, you you kind of gave us an introduction last week, and now we're gonna dive a little bit more into it. Al, the floor is yours. All right. So this week we will be talking about the uh, the crimes that have, that went on during these murders. Um, and these are actual true crimes that happened. Um, they the the a killer was never caught. So this is just a recap of last week's. Um. And so that that the fact that they were never caught is kind of what makes it uh, a cryptid, more folklorish because a lot of, it's a lot of hearsay going around between people uh, of the town of Texarkana between Arkansas side and Texas side. 
Um, so we will start with the first murder uh, on February 22nd, 1946. Um, this attack occurred around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd. At the time, Jimmy Hollis, at, uh, 25 years old, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Laurie, uh, at 19, parked on a quiet road in Texarkana, Texas, known as Lover's Lane. Around 10 minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with, eyes hole, with eye holes cut out, appeared at the driver's side door of the car and shone a flashlight in the window. Hollis wasn't sure if it was a prank or not and told the man he had the wrong person, to which the masked assailant responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The masked assailant ordered Hollis and Laurie out of the driver's side door and ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches. After Hollis complied with the demands that the masked man struck Hollis in the head twice with a pistol, Lori later told investigators that the noise was so loud that she thought Hollis was shot. The noise is actually Hollis's skull fracturing. Lori thought the assailant wanted to rob them and showed Hollis's wallet that had no money in it, to which she, she was struck with a blunt object. Uh, she was then ordered to stand and told to start running up the road. As Lori was running, she spotted an old car parked off the road and ran to it but found it empty. Um, so at that point, I think that was probably this person's vehicle, maybe. Um, but then she was confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running. She stated that you told me to um, to the assailant. The assailant called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of the gun. After the assault, Lori ran to another half mile to a nearby house and woke the residents to phone the police. Within 30 minutes of the call, Bowie County Sheriff... Uh, W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. Lori was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound, while Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from the multiple skull fractures he obtained. Hollis and Lori gave conflicting reports of the attack that night. Lori claimed she was could see under the man's mask and described the man as a light-skinned African-American. Hollis claimed it was a tanned white man around 30, but stated he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded by the flashlight. Both did agree that the assailant was around six feet tall, Law enforcement believed that the two knew who the identity of the attacker was and were covering it up. Um, so just on that, that first, this first incident, there was no deaths. Um, but the fact that she was told to take off running and then there was an assailant that caught her. So it kind of sounds like maybe there is was two of them. Yeah. Um, or there's something weird. There's definitely something weird. Right. Yeah. And so so this 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 is the first one that happened, and people, I guess, were just kind of just played it off, didn't really think anything about it, because the you know, okay, no murders happen. They're on a quiet out stretch of town doing you know things. Uh, it just it, I mean, it's just one of those things where it seems super weird that. <sighs> so like my question, especially when reading it again, was like, why did he ask the man to take off his pants, like? Was he planning to assault the man? So yeah. when so at the end when it says that the the police believe that they might have known the assailant and covered it like were covering up for it, like maybe this was a weird triangle relationship gone wrong. Possibly. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot there that's just like, huh. I, and so you know, like I was saying, there's a lot of hearsay, folklore stuff that yeah. You know, at this time, records weren't really great at that time. Um, this is the 40s, so record-keeping, so-so. All right, um, yeah. Let, let's move on to the next crime, the next crime of so the, uh, so this is, this is the first double murders. Um, so this happened on March 24th, 1946. 
Richard L. Griffin and his girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore, 17, were found dead in Griffin's car on the morning of Sunday, March 24, 1946, by a passing motorist. The car was parked on a lover's lane 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67. Griffin was found between the front seat on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands with two bullet wounds with one into the back of the head. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat with a bullet wound also to the back of the head, but there is evidence that suggests she was placed there after being killed on a blanket outside the car. When police arrived, they investigated and found a blood-soaked patch of earth near the car, which tells them they were both killed outside of the car and placed back in. A 32 cal cartridge shell was found, which was possibly shot from the pistol wrapped in a blanket. Um, so this this murder actually didn't have very much information on it. Um, I mean, now, it shows it shows if anything, like it, it shows where the link between them is. But it seems like such a an aggressive jump from from the first crime. Yeah, that, literally that, a month later. That there's that there's either two trains of thought, right? So it's it's not it's not unheard of for someone that that goes down a serial or spree type killing or or crime spree that they start off and they ramp up uh, the intensity until they finally hit that point where they're in whatever they feel the most comfortable with how they're going to process their murders and stuff like that. Uh, so it's actually not it's not weird that. You know, the first crime would have been messy and maybe no one died because there's a lot of serial killers that have that M.O. Once yeah. it started to go back and find that, oh, they actually may have started earlier, but it was never a murder at that point in time. It wasn't a murder until years or months or days later. Um, so that's not the weirdest part. I guess the weirdest part is like how quickly uh, it seemed to be and like how murder like there didn't seem like there was going to be any instance of murder here, but maybe that's. Maybe the fact that both of these individuals were able to talk to the cops is what would intensify the killer to like, well, now I've got to kill everyone. Like, I can't leave yeah. anyone alive because I don't want anyone talking about this. That, and that's fair. That, that And so that that could be what escalated this because it may have been published in the paper or word started spreading around town about it. And so that, that may be what escalated. Yep. All right. Crime um, number three. Uh, so this is the second of the double murders that happened. Um, this happened on April 14th, so almost a month later, uh, in 1946. Near 1.30 a.m. on that very Sunday of April 14th, Paul Martin, 17, picked up Betty Jo Booker, 15, from a performance at the VFW in Texarkana, Texas. Five hours later, Martin's body was found lying on its left side near the edge of North Park Road. Blood was found across the road by the fence on the opposite side. He had been shot four times, through the nose, the, mm. through the ribs from the back, in the right hand, and through the back of the neck. Booger's body was found by a search party five more hours later, by almost two miles away from Martin's body. Her body was found behind a tree, laying on her back fully clothed, with, with her right hand in the pocket of her button coat. Booger was shot twice, once to the chest and once to the face. The weapon was used with, was the same caliber as the first double murder, a thirty-two cal automatic Colt pistol. Martin's car was found three miles from Booker's body and one and a half miles from Martin's body. So a little in between it had been parked outside of Spring Lake Park with the key still in it. The police were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel said that the autopsy indicated that both Martin and Booker put up a terrific struggle during the attacks. So I guess this continues like it's still like just a month later and the crime itself has changed a little bit. It's still it's still a couple still out on like a lover's lane or at least a lover's interaction type thing, uh, presumably. Um, so like that still matches, but like how many times 
and like how viciously the bodies were shot. Like shooting the lady in the face feels super personal, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And, and shooting the guy four times was it? Like yes, again, that feels like that's unnecessary uh, if you're just wanting to potentially murder and assault. Um, uh, yeah. So, so uh, it's weird. It's weird. It's definitely weird how this has escalated to this point within such a short amount of time. And so there is one more set of, or one more murder that happens, and it's the final murder that happens almost another month later on May 3rd, 1946. Now, this one has some hesitation to it to, to see if it's linked or not. Um, so on Friday, May 3rd, 1946, a little before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, 37, and his wife Katie, 36, were home on their 500-acre farm about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana, Arkansas. So this is the first one in Arkansas. The the other three incidences happened in Tex, the Texas side of Texarkana. Gotcha. Uh, Virgil was sitting in an armchair reading a newspaper when he was shot twice in the back of the head from a closed double window. Hearing the sound of the broken glass, Katie came from another room and saw Virgil stand up and then slump, slump back down into the armchair. After noticing Virgil was dead, Katie ran to the wall, crank phone to call the police and was shot in the face twice from the same window. She fell, but soon regained her composure and tried to get a pistol from another room, but was blinded by her own blood. She then heard the killer at the back of the house and ran out the front, barefoot across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. No one was home, so she then ran to the neighbor's, A.V. Prater's house, and gasped Virgil was dead, then collapsed herself. Now, this this is a very Arcan southern country thing to do, okay? <laughs> Prater then shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, El Elmer Taylor, who Prater sent to get his car. Prater and Taylor took Miss Starks to Mich uh, Michael Mager Hospital, now Miller County Health Unit. Stark was questioned in the operating room by Miller, Counter Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who would become head of the investigation. There, there's some hesitation in linking the Starks murder to the other crimes because the weapon used in this murder was a 22 caliber automatic rifle. By November 1948, authorities no longer considered this uh, murder connected to the double murders. Which makes total sense because the M.O. is drastically different oh, yeah. uh, than the other three. Um, not even just from the location, like uh, going from one state where it seemed to be localized to uh, the Arkansas side, but actually going to someone's house. Uh, and it seems like trying to do this from a distance... Uh, like shooting through a window as opposed to where the other three crimes, uh, it seemed very much like the assailant slash murderer was very involved with the body's placement and murder of them. Like it seemed like it was very up close. Uh, and, and the fact the gun's different and the fact that the lady was shot twice and was still able to move around and run. Yeah. What? <laughs> like that's pretty intense. Good for her, but like. Uh, you shoot me in the face once, I think I'm just going to die. Yeah, I, I, that, it doesn't sound great. Um, no, it doesn't. And and so this is this is the last murder that happened in this series of uh, murders that went on at this time. Um, and so it, it's just kind of strange that it just ends. Um, so that that is what threw a lot of people off about this. Do we have – did you say there was a third part that you were wanting to do of this? Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk, I think, if you're cool with it, next week we'll talk about uh, some of the suspects, and yes, then yes. we'll run yep. through that real quick, and then I'll talk about the movie a little bit, and uh, that'll be it. Heck yeah, there you go, that's your teaser for next week's Cryptid Corner. Boop, 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 boop.
Boo. Uh, and this is what? The Texarkana Moonlight Murders Part 2. We're on to Part 3 next week. But all right. All right. So uh, it's time once again for the Cryptid Corner. Now you have your Part 3, the final installment of the Texarkana uh, Murders, the Phantom Murders that Terrified Texarkana. Okay. So on this week's episode, we'll be talking about the suspects. Um Throughout the investigation, almost 400 suspects were arrested. There were numerous false confessions investigated by police. Tackett, an Arkansas state trooper and the lead investigator investigator for the Starks murder, recalled nine people who confessed to being the Phantom, but none of their statements agreed with the facts. So we're going to go over a little bit, uh, over a little of the uh, suspects, and uh, the, but there was no true suspect ever uh, arrested or found guilty or anything, so... Um, you'll ha- so the first one is uh, Yule Sweeney. Yule Sweeney was a 29-year-old car thief and counterfeiter. He was arrested in July of 1946 by Tackett, who was investi- investigating car thefts after realizing that during the Griffin Moore murder, a car had been stolen in the area and previously stolen car had been found abandoned. Tackett was able to locate the abandoned car and arrested Sweeney's wife, Peggy, when she came to retrieve it. Peggy confessed in great detail that Sweeney was the phantom killer and had killed Booker and Martin. Her story changed in details across several interviews, and police believed she was withholding info in fear of incriminating herself and fear of Sweeney. Police were able to verify some of Peggy's details, including the location of victims' possessions where she had said you, uh, you'll discarded them. There was considerable circumstantial evidence against Sweeney, but Peggy's confession was the most critical part of the case. However, Peggy recanted her confession and couldn't be compelled to testify against her husband. Law enforcement worked for several months trying to validate Peggy's statements. They found that on the night of Booker Martin's murder, that Sweeney's were sleeping in their car under a bridge in San Antonio. Sweeney was never charged with murder. Instead, was tried in prison as a habitual offender for car theft. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, you know, if we can't get him for murder, we can get him for the car theft. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's one thing to have your wife go to the police and say that you are but I think if you're wanting to to discredit that or to 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 make reason as to why she she would do that and then maybe recants is listen this is a time period where domestic violence was not treated in the same manner it was now she may have been living in a very very unhappy marriage not to say that she was perfect um, but there's a chance that if Sweeney is as awful uh, to the point that you would want to convict him for the murder, of a serial killer at large that you know maybe there was something else going on there with that relationship and uh, it even mentioned that you know she kind of was a little bit scared of of the husband yeah. so yeah all right so that, who's who who oh, let's go ahead oh that so that was the big one um that's the one that you know that has the most evidence behind it and the most like i guess fan filled person who would probably be the killer um, these others are not at, they're like, they have little bitty information on them. Um, they're just out there, I think, because, I mean, there was so many arrests at the time that all these people probably came up. Um, so we'll get, we'll move on to the next one. Um, so the next one is H.B. Duty Tennyson. Tennyson was an 18-year-old uh, university freshman who died by suicide November 4th, 1948. He left behind a cryptic instruction which directed investigators to a suicide note in which Tennyson confessed to Booker Martin and the Starks murder. And that's exactly the end of that. Um, There's no more info on that one. Um, He just had a cryptic letter stating that he was the killer and committed suicide. It's very weird. If nothing else, it's very weird. Yeah. 
Um, the next one is Ralph B. Bauman. Bauman was a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner who claimed to have woken from a, a fugue state of several weeks on the days of, Stark's, of the Starks murders with his rifle missing. He stated that he heard about a suspect matching his description and, and hitchhiked to Los Angeles feeling like he was running from murder. On May 23, 1946, he told Los Angeles police that he thought he was the Phantom. The police arrested him, but his statements didn't line up with the facts. So uh, it's weird. It's weird. But I think I think there is um kind of a and you know his his entering a fugue state and everything you know clearly there there may be some other things that he needed to work out that again at this point in time in our society we were not handling mental health especially of veterans very well and it would be understandable why there might be some confusion and why maybe he felt in to to lean more into paranoia then maybe the logic of yeah this wasn't me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this wasn't yeah. me yeah so that's still weird time... but still weird <laughs> uh the next one is the uh saxophone peddler Inve investigators were hoping at the time of the booker martin murders that booker's saxophone would show up in the lead and lead to an arrest on april 27 1946 and a suspicious man was arrested in corpus christi texas for trying to sell a saxophone to a music store he had asked the store manager about selling it but became evasive and fled from the manager Although no saxophone was found when police arrested him, they did find a bag of bloody clothes in his hotel room. The The man was eventually cleared as a suspect. Booker's saxophone was later located on October 24, 1946, six months after her murder in the underbrush near where her body was found. Okay, so my question is, how was the saxophone not seen during the original <laughs> investigation? I, that's a great question. Um, did uh, not get out there in a the line and just go... <laughs> Yeah, so I, I guess if you want to, if you want to continue to build into the mystique of it all, that clearly means one, they're either not incompetent, but maybe they didn't, they weren't as thorough. Or what if the killer returned to hide it at the scene of the crime after it was no longer truly a scene of a crime? Yeah, I mean that's fair. Yeah, any in, in this time period, anything could happen. Um, yeah, especially because there's no social media, there's no cell phone, there's nothing. It's it, it, it's all by paper book that that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah. They may had a, like a house phone, but that's a landline, but that's it. Nothing else. So, uh, so the next, the next suspect is a German prisoner of war on May 8th, 1946. It was announced that an escaped German prisoner of war who was already being hunted as a matter of routine was considered a suspect. He was described as a stocky 24 year old, about 187 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. He had a, he had stolen a car in Mount Ida, Arkansas, and attempted to buy ammunition in several eastern Oklahoma towns. The police searched endlessly. Endless. The police searched endlessly for the uh, prisoner of war, but was said to have vanished in th into thin air. Now, see, this feels like uh, an appropriate uh, urban legend of that time period, right? Yeah. Uh, we're at the we're at the uh, culmination uh, of World War II winding down. Uh, so, of course. The, the villain of every villain uh, would be a German soldier free on our soil. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Why would uh, a prisoner of war be in Mount Ida, I guess, would be the question. Uh, yeah. How did he get it to America? It's, it's 1946. And at the time, that would be, you know, 19. When was the original murders? Uh, the 40s. 
So I mean, forty six. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, during the during the height of of everything and before our true involvement in, yeah, maybe there's some holes there. Of maybe that's just uh, a story of the times, less than maybe a factual <laughs> report. Uh, the next suspect was an unknown hitchhiker. On May 7, 1946, a hitchhiker armed with a pistol carjacked and robbed a man, threatening to kill him, and stated that he had killed five people in Texarkana, naming Martin and Booker. This hitchhiker went on to say he was not he is, was not finished killing people. The police were doubtful this man was the phantom killer, noting that the killer had gone to great lengths to conceal his identity while the hitchhiker boasted to a living uh, witness. Which there are people... I mean, it still happens nowadays when there's murders of people wanting to take credit for being like the son of Sam or the Zodiac killer. So yeah. I mean that 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 that's Bible. Believe that. I believe there's a person out there that wanted to twist the notoriety to make themselves uh a big fish. Um so we have two more. This one is was named Sammy. Sammy is a pseudonym given to longtime Texarkana resident with a good reputation who the police were reluctant to name as a suspect. His vehicle tire marks were found across the road from Martin's corpse. He failed a polygraph test, so the police had him hypnotized and by psychiatrist Travis Elliott. Elliott concluded that Sammy had no criminal tendencies, that he pulled his vehicle to the side of the road to urinate and was on his way to visit a married woman with whom he was having an affair with in which Sammy concealed this fel- concealing this failed the polygraph test. After police verified the details, they cleared Sammy as a suspect. I like the good old days when we brought in the old hypnotist to help us solve the crime. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, po- and polygraph tests are just... They're terrible. They're don't ever. Well, I mean, that's one. why that's why they're no longer admissible yeah. in court. And, and they're just horrible. So, in both of these situations for this guy were were not looking great for him. No. <laughs> uh, and so the last one on our list is Earl McSpaden. On May seventh, nineteen forty six, at about six a.m., the body of McSpaden was found on the Kansas City Southern Railroad tracks, sixteen miles north of Texarkana near Ogden. The body's left arm and leg had been severed by a train a half hour earlier. The coroner's jury, the coroner's jury's verdict stated death at the hands of a person unknown and that he was dead before being placed on the railroad tracks. Because the murder went unsolved, many speculate that this was the phantom killer's sixth victim. Rumor floated around states McSpain was the phantom and had committed suicide by jumping in front of the train. This could just be a very unfortunate thing that happened, though, too. Yeah. Um... And so, uh, but I mean, so the person, whoever it was um, that did all this, if it was one person, um, we don't really know. Um, but if, if they were the right age, I've read that speculation could be that he left Arkansas and went to California and became the sense. became the Zodiac killer. Ooh, scandalous! What a twist! Because the Zodiac killer happened in the '60s, and this was the mid to late. 40s so yeah and a lot of a lot of similarities too in terms of how the the mo kind of operated with some of the the murders specifically the the couple uh the couple out that were in their car outside their car around a car uh is very much zodiac killer-esque so that's all the suspects so there's a little bit of media stuff that that goes along with this so there was a film made it's uh called a town that dreaded sundown it was Filmed in 1976, it's an American thriller and horror film, and it's directed and produced by Charles B. Pierce, the same uh, director who uh, filmed and did that for The Legend of Boggy Creek and The Fountain Monster. Um, it collected $5 million, five million at the box offices for that time, and it only had a $400,000 uh, budget. 
I believe we call that a slamming success uh, <laughs> when you when you're able to go that uh, far above your budget. So, so some other movies that were around at that time in 1976, One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, Taxi Driver, Bad News Bears, The Omen, Carrie, and Rocky. So, I mean, it had a it had a pretty good showing, especially with the other movies that were coming out at that time. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm always fascinated, especially once I started bringing this up, of how like how successful uh, these two Arkansas urban legend cryptid type movies were uh at their time and kind of how they did i mean like this again a box office success uh if you just yep. measure it and then if you add it to inflation uh this probably this probably is a smashing success for an arkansas story <laughs> yeah um so this film is also shown uh in the public park uh in texarkana near halloween every year it is the last film shown for movies in the park which plays a film on each thursday during may and october it has been a tradition since 2003. So, I mean, they, they show this every year. I guess, I guess they're happy about it. I don't know. It's, Not, it's Nothing <laughs> like reminding the town folk that a horrific murder was never, or a horrific serial killer was never found in the midst of our, of our, of our vicinity. God bless it. <laughs> hey, I'm all, I'm all for, if you have an urban legend or something like that, I'm all for you as a town leaning into it. Uh, I mean, let's be fair. If there wasn't for something like that, do you care about Texarkana, Arkansas, or Texas? No. No. <laughs> you don't. There's nothing there. Uh, so if you're a small town that has no appeal or draw to it, and you happen to have an urban legend or cryptid, you got to lean into that. I mean, if Bigfoot was, if the Bigfoot story originated in uh, Ozark, Arkansas, you best believe I would tell everyone I come from the home of Bigfoot. Yep. But I didn't, and that didn't happen. So there you go. <laughs> I just wow. have a I just have a documented murder of a doctor that made it on uh, national television. Ooh, I go. think it might have been on Unsolved Mysteries too. Uh, but the the doctor the murder of Doctor Becky in Ozark. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a big deal back in the nineties. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> we've successfully conquered another cryptid slash urban legend, whatever you would really consider this. Um, yeah. This one's true, but he, by word of mouth, it became a cryptid, I guess. And so, in the fact that nobody was ever caught for it, so. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Al. Uh, now we need to figure out where your brain's going to go with the next batch of cryptids. Uh, since I think we've extinguished our Arkansas ties, and now we got to branch out mm. to the, the wider world. I think world. there's, no, I think there's two more. Heck uh, yeah. So, we're going to keep at with me, the Arkansas let me search stuff. And I'll, and I'll get with you. 